Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. when our interests are threatened, yet we do not seek confrontation. So let me be clear. As Secretary, I am committed to pursuing a constructive, stable relationship with China, including stronger crisis communications with the People's Liberation Army. You know, big powers need to model transparency and communication. That's U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking in Singapore earlier this week at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, just one day after the Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman led a delegation to Tianjin to meet with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi and his delegation. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray from the Business Desk here at the South China Morning Post. It was interesting to see the, quote, will not flinch moment in Lloyd Austin's speech make world headlines this week. Here we are on Friday, and the Chinese embassy in Singapore has published a 600-word post to its Facebook page, attacking the speech and its references to Shenzhen, Taiwan, and India. And Lloyd Austin's moved on from Singapore on a tour that's taking him to the Philippines and Vietnam. But something not widely reported from that speech on Tuesday is worth hearing to get a sense of his agenda and how the U.S. is seeking to challenge China's diplomacy in the region. Let's have a listen right here for the very pointed reference he makes. You know, in just the past two months, we have shared some 40 million doses throughout the region, including Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, the Philippines, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, and Vietnam. And you know what? They're free. No conditions, no small print, and no strings attached. Because this is an emergency, and that's what friends do. That's what friends do. And already the U.S. style of vaccine diplomacy seems to be bringing results. Just as we walked into the studio today, we read the news that Philippines President Duterte has announced a renewal of a security pact he previously canceled with the United States. But to start off, we're going back to Tianjin, and the meeting not so much as friends, but as multi-million dollar trading partners who are also geopolitical rivals, trying to find common ground. We're going to hear from our correspondents in New York and in Beijing about how the Wang Yi-Wendy Sherman meeting played out, and the re-emergence of a disturbing buzzword we haven't heard since the 1980s. And we're also going to hear about another strategic power play beyond the South China Sea. Our Asia desk correspondent, John Power, is going to explain the curious story of how Australian taxpayers might just have to pay more than a billion dollars of their money to deny a Chinese telecom the chance to buy a phone network serving the island nations of the Pacific. It's a long jump for a freestyle with a possible somersault in between. On with the show. 
The headlines at the moment seem to be about the rivalry over who's winning the most medals in Tokyo. But earlier this week in the city of Tianjin, an hour's drive southeast of Beijing, we saw face-to-face -face competition with much higher stakes than just who comes in first or second, gold or silver. Wendy Sherman, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, led an American delegation in a face-to-face -face meeting with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi and Vice Minister Xi Jinping and their delegation. To make sense of what happened and what might happen next, we have Mark Magnier in our New York bureau and Sarah Zhang in our Beijing bureau with us. Now in the lead-up to this, Wang Yi announced he would give a tutorial to Wendy Sherman on how to treat other countries. Sarah, thanks for joining us. How did this tutorial play out? Okay, well, what we saw is that this time the Chinese side was really explicit in outlining their demands for the U.S. It didn't have the same sort of fireworks that the Alaska meeting between China and the U.S. did, where the two sides were really confrontational in front of the cameras, um, calling each other out. This time it was more substantial sort of requests from both sides. So the Chinese side in particular, with Wang Yi laying out three bottom lines that China has for the U.S. and then Vice Foreign Minister Xie Feng saying that he has two lists, one of wrongdoings that the U.S. has done and the other outlining some grave concerns that the Chinese has with the U.S. So Sarah, could you take us what was on those lists? There were wrongdoings that China wants the U.S. to correct, including things like lifting visa restrictions from Communist Party members and their families, dropping the U.S. request for the extradition of Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou, who's in Canada at the moment, um, ending the requirement for Chinese media to be registered as foreign missions in the U.S., these sorts of things. And then on the list of grave concerns, there were things um, that they had concerns about, like Chinese visas to the U.S. being rejected, Chinese students, um, the unfair treatment of Chinese citizens in the U.S., the closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston, which, of course, China at the time responded to with the reciprocal closure of the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. Um, and then the three bottom lines that Wang Yi talked about, those are sort of red lines that China has said consistently, but this time just outlining it very clearly, saying, you know, the U.S. should not challenge or subvert our system and path. They shouldn't disrupt our development and our modernization. And then definitely on issues relating to um, Chinese sovereignty. So involving Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, and also Taiwan, all places that are very sensitive for China considered their core issues and, you know, places that China has consistently told the U.S., please don't interfere. These are our internal affairs. And Mark, I wanted to turn to you and, and sort of see how Wendy Sherman and the U.S. delegation responded to these demands. One of the things I thought that was interesting, well, there's a lot of interesting things in the dynamic of this whole thing and, and the, the little elbowing for protocol that we saw over that long weekend before the, uh, the meeting was settled. But I think one of the interesting things is that they did not respond. So in a way, the silence told more about it than, than if they'd come out swinging. In the most optimistic terms, what we're seeing is the two sides are circling big time now. They are engaging. Uh, so you can look on these meetings as, or this meeting as the, the fact that it was held at all is probably almost the most you can come out of it with. So I think that that's your baseline. And then there's going to be a lot of airing and posturing. Plus, I think the U.S. very much downplayed beforehand any expectations 
to try to avoid looking like a failure. But as I said, I think the fact that they did not respond as you know, Chinese officials essentially wagged their finger at them like a teacher who spoke to the fact that they're, they're, they're trying to get things back on track. And among sort of their requests, their demands, depending how you want to, want to refer to it, there were some low-hanging fruit that the Biden administration could respond to. And one of those was about sort of Trump-era restrictions on Chinese media and visas. Is there any sense that the Biden administration might, you know, roll those back? My sense is that they're going to hold their fire. They're, they're not going to give something away. This was a first meeting to sit down. Presumably, they aired things a little more constructively in private than, than in public. Um, the public was for uh, the domestic audience primarily. Um, there was a lot beforehand about how the U.S. asked us to come, the sort of Having it, I still think having it in Tianjin rather than Beijing sent a signal that they slapped sanctions on immediately before Wendy came to town. These were all kind of signals that we're not going to make this easy for you. So I think basically you lay down the line, but I think those are low hanging fruit that you can expect. Perhaps if we get to a, a Yang Jiechi, Blinken, uh, or Jake Sullivan meeting kind of one further step up, which would be a signal that President Xi Jinping and President Biden are uh, lining up the magnets to meet in Italy at the sidelines of the G20 in October. And sir, I wanted to turn back and ask you, the U.S. also ha- has its own requests and demands. And so I'm curious if there's any sense that Wang Yi was willing to accept those U.S. requests, particularly when it came around climate change and the upcoming uh, uh, COPA 26. I think what's interesting is that the Chinese side, even before the Sherman meeting, they were saying, you know, climate change, cooperation on any of these issues, it's only possible if the U.S. is not also at the same time suppressing us. So, you know, U.S. sanctions, the U.S. putting out a business advisor in Hong Kong, constant criticism over human rights. There is this feeling that, you know, if the U.S. is continuing to what the Chinese feel like is suppression of the country and of their development, then there's not that much room for cooperation. And we saw that during Biden's climate summit as well. The two sides were still arguing, even over something that seems like it would be easier for the two to cooperate on. The Chinese side was saying, you know, we've already done our share. It's the U.S. and developed nations that need to take on more of this weight. So from this meeting in particular, it did not seem like the Chinese side was amenable to, you know, any significant sort of movement towards cooperation. Um, It was really the idea that, you know, the U.S., you need to first complete the homework that we've given you, and then maybe there's room for us to talk. And Sarah, how did all of this meeting play out in state media, on social media? Is this something where people really were talking about it in China or is this something where it sort of came and went without, you know, much sound out there? There was definitely a lot of anticipation of this meeting, um, but the sense was that this meeting did not have the same, I guess, sort of made-for-TV drama as the Alaska meeting did. There weren't any viral lines that then subsequently appeared on Taobao products to inflame nationalists. Um, so the meeting, definitely there were, some, there were people who were talking about it saying, look, the U.S. side is coming to us and we are still insisting that they play on equal terms, but definitely not the same sort of anger or or nationalistic fervor as the Alaska meeting. Just really the idea that, you know, 
we're talking now, that's good, but it needs to be on our terms. And Mark, let me turn back to you and ask about how this played in the U.S. Are people really talking about it, or has this just been buried by stories out of Tokyo around the Olympics? There is a lot going on right now in Washington. Uh, You've got this, in a funny way, actually, many of these issues kind of touch on China indirectly, but they are very, very distracting domestically. You have this massive infrastructure package. You have the January 6th commission um, on uh, insurrection in the Capitol. You have the uh, massive defense budget that's coming through that has been increased, presumably to counter China. And then you have Delta and the mask mandate. So I would say most of the pieces were uh, fairly analytical, fairly balanced. Basically, they uh, spoke about how China took a very maximalist position, gave no ground. There was some discussion about how some sort of self-reflection that there might be some cracks in President Biden's strategy, which has essentially been we'll uh, confront them on areas where we have differences and then we will work with them in uh, areas of shared concern and China has made it very clear we're not going to go for that equation. We're not going to play nice in one area if you're not nice in many of the others. So there was that. I think there were some comments when uh, Xie Fang or or Wang Yi had had talked about how the U.S. cannot uh, think it can treat other nations in an inferior manner. And if needed, China and the international community will, some version of, will teach them how to behave. But there was some commentary that if you look at the quest for hearts and minds around the world and what's happened with the Pew surveys and feel, the feeling toward China that we're seeing in Asia, in Europe and in North America, that they've got a tough road to hoe if they think they're going to bring the international community on side. And just next year, the, the Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing, and there's a lot of controversy about that. And, and you've written a, a story recently about U.S. companies deflecting uh, questions over whether or not they'll boycott the upcoming Olympics, something we really haven't seen since, you know, 1980 and 1984 with the the Russia-U.S. conflict. So could you walk us a little bit through your story on that? This this was an amazing hearing. This was really something. I mean, you you kind of, your eyes glaze glaze over with most hearings on Capitol Hill. Uh, They brought in five companies uh, that are Olympic sponsors, Airbnb, Coca-Cola, Intel, Procter & Gamble, and Visa. And it's a bipartisan uh, commission that tried to basically get these companies to stand up and make statements about human rights, about the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, the Tibetans. And the, the companies were sort of playbook number one on their media training. That's just essentially... Over and over again, it's all about the athletes. We believe in peace, harmony, and communication between all peoples. We care about human rights, but we don't set any policy. Um, we have no influence. And so the, you saw these lawmakers get more and more frustrated trying to pin them down. And over and over again, they went back to the, the same talking points. At one point, one of the co-chairmen of the commission basically said, you have enormous clout, you have power over advertising, the the contracts you sign with the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, whether or not your CEOs attend, you have the example that you set, and they said, oh, no, 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 it's all about the athletes. So you saw that. 
And then there were two companies in particular that came under more pointed uh, scrutiny. One was Airbnb, which has essentially had many of its listings in China explicitly banning Uyghurs and Tibetans. And then Coke, which is very involved in the Xinjiang supply chain. And they faced much tougher scrutiny. One of the interesting things was when the lawmakers tried uh, to corner them on a bottom line, basically saying, if the games were in North Korea, would you object? Uh, Would you still go along with whatever the IOC said? If Los Angeles had some games and put Jewish Americans and African Americans in camps, how would you, what would you do with that? (laughs) They went back to talking about it's all about the athletes. So it was quite a show. It sounds like it. And um, Sarah, I want to turn back to you. Coming out of Alaska, coming out of this latest meeting, we're still hearing a lot of terms that, that go back to the Cold War, things like stalemate. I'm curious, is this a sense that you're getting that, that the U.S. and China are at loggerheads and, and just sort of stuck? Or is there a place that they can go for you know some agreement? At least the sense I get from talking to people in China and people in Beijing is that it really is at a stalemate, or at least that's how they feel. They feel like maybe that it's not at the level of a new Cold War necessarily. That's a term that China, you know, doesn't like to use. But definitely that, you know, there's slow progress going forward. People actually coming out of the Sherman meeting, I was talking to a Chinese scholar who was saying he was cautiously optimistic that, you know, if the U.S. side does sort of acquiesce and go along with some of our demands. Maybe there is room for us to slowly pick things up and ease these tensions. Um, I mean, I, I didn't get the sense from what Mark was saying that the U.S. side is open to, you know, completing this homework. But definitely, you know, that is the feeling from some people. Like, we've already laid out how we can move out of the stalemate, out of the sedlock. So it's, it's really on the U.S. side now to do that, even though, you know, if they don't, then this is where we are. We're at this this place, this impasse where things can't move forward, but we're giving you a way out, essentially. And Mark, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, positions seem to be hardening about China. And and so is there a willingness to take that way out, to try to reach some accords between the two countries? I think so. I mean, you have seen more legislation and more activity on China in Congress than probably, you know, the cumulative going back decades. Uh, It has been phenomenal, the number of pieces. You know, I think ultimately the administration will need to find a path out, but it will face a pretty tough road given you have this near unanimity in Congress. And I think, you know, that is maybe partially a negotiating strategy, but also partly the domestic politics inform the fact that Biden has kept many of the Trump uh, sanctions and Trump hardline policies in place because it is going to look weak uh, if he starts giving away too much. It will open him to criticism that he's soft on communism uh, and we're in the election cycle. We're not too far away from 2022 Uh, and the midterm elections. Before we wrap up, Sarah, I wanted to come back to you and ask about sort of the latest development. We have um, a new ambassador to the United States from China who's just arrived. And 
you know, has, has a pretty hard line reputation. Yeah, so Qingang, he was a former vice foreign minister, now the new incoming Chinese ambassador to the U.S. with a very heavy task ahead of him. Um, he just arrived this morning, actually, and we saw some photos from the airport where he has, you know, the Chinese flag on his mask. And then he spoke to um, media right after and said, you know, we, we can't have the Cold War. You know, there's a path forward for us. I hope that the U.S. can recover from the pandemic, this type of thing. And we know that before he went to the U.S., he met with some U.S. business executives and also Chinese scholars in Shanghai. So it'll be interesting because we know he has a reputation also for being more wolf warrior-esque. And I just talked to someone yesterday in Beijing who described him as very feisty. So there will be some interesting things ahead. Uh, definitely so. Mark, I, I wanted to turn to you because we've heard from Joe Shin on this podcast about how, how little experience that he has with American culture and, and sort of dealing with Americans directly. And, and so could we see him on Fox News? Uh, well, yeah, I think that would that would really be something. I mean, I think you have a couple of things here that are interesting. One is that the U.S. has not named its ambassador to China yet, and China has. So that's quite interesting. And then the very different tone with Tsui uh, Tiankai, the, the just departed ambassador, who was widely respected, I think had much more nuance, was quite liked. And uh, there's also a kind of a sense of feeling in Washington that the poor guy had to stay much longer than he wanted. He's exhausted that he had to endure all this pummeling during the Trump administration and probably just wanted to go home. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not the days of George Herbert Walker Bush uh, being the ambassador to China. That's right. So there's much more to come. We have a, a lot of global meetings coming up in the fall where we could see possibly a sideline meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and, and Joe Biden. We'll have to see. We'll follow your coverage on SCMP.com, you know, more analysis. So thanks for joining us, Sarah and Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Hi, it's Jasmine here one of the producers of the China Geopolitics podcast. Just a quick reminder of our special feature-length interview with Professor Rosemary Foote from Oxford University. She's a globally recognized expert on China's relationship with the United Nations. But she's also got some fascinating insights into China's relationship with Japan. On the one hand, um, Japan is America's most important ally in, in the Asia-Pacific region. And of course, um, Japan is also the alternative other, the, the, you know, the difficult relationship of the war years and so on. But at the same time, they wish to retain as much agency as possible, as much autonomy, policy autonomy as they possibly can. Part of the special edition podcast on Xi Jinping, China, and the United Nations 50 years on. In your podcast feed right now. Recently, John Power from the SCMP Asia Desk filed an analysis piece about how Australian taxpayers just might be forced to pay for a mobile phone network covering the South Pacific in order to deny a Chinese company from buying it. And just to make it a truly international telecommunications tug of war, it looks like they might pay over a billion U.S. dollars to an Irish billionaire for the pleasure. Is that right, John? Yeah, so this uh, story involves um, Digicel and specifically its Pacific operations. So Digicel, which is owned by the Irish billionaire Dennis O'Brien, is the main network carrier across a lot of Pacific 
island nations such as Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands. Uh, and this part of the region has really emerged in recent years as sort of a ground zero for a sort of geostrategic competition between China and the United States and its allies, and specifically in this case, Australia. Uh, Australia traditionally has seen that part of the world as sort of its backyard. Um, and it's emerged now in, in recent weeks that the Australian government has moved to try and secure a deal under which Telstra, which is the main telecommunications firm in Australia, would acquire Digicel. And the rationale behind this would be to block Chinese concern from acquiring the telecom, specifically China Mobile. Um, and as part of this deal, the Australian government would essentially uh, support the purchase with a, a tidy uh, taxpayer loan. The interesting thing about this, though, is that it's quite unclear actually what the extent of China Mobile or any other Chinese concerns interest actually is. China Mobile has not gone on record to say that it is interested in any purchase. And actually, even in Australia, including among quite China hawk circles, there's a lot of skepticism about what exactly is going on behind the scenes here. And there are some suggestions maybe that the Chinese interests may be exaggerated or inflated to some extent, potentially to you know drive up interest in this sale and essentially put a geopolitical premium on the purchase. As we know, back in 2018, Australia, under its former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, very publicly blocked Huawei from developing a 5G network in Australia. And that was arguably a, a turning point in relations between uh, Beijing and, and Canberra. You know, how does this play into that narrative of Australia versus China, particularly, you know, with regional neighbors? Yeah, I mean, uh, Australia was the first country in the world to make a definitive decision to block Huawei from the, the 5G network. And that was, a, as you say, arguably a turning point uh, in Sino-Australian relations. Since then, really, things have gone from worse to worse. And um, the Australian perspective on this is basically that because Huawei is under the Chinese system, it would be unable to resist or decline any Chinese government request to access data and to snoop on users and that kind of thing. So Australia's argument is basically that we can't have our telecommunications network sort of at the behest of, of Chinese control. China denies any such suggestion and Huawei has always insisted that it's a private company that is committed to protecting uh, user data and privacy. But um, this, I think, does speak to the anxiety in Australia and in a lot of Western countries increasingly about rising Chinese influence in the region. On this issue specifically, I mean, around the same time that Australia actually blocked Huawei from its own network, it also stepped in to prevent a deal uh, with Huawei for an undersea cable that would have connected uh, Sydney to uh, Papua New Guinea as well. Um, and again, that decision where they basically decided we'll pay for that for you instead of these Chinese concerns was, you know, justified on, on national security concerns, if not publicly, certainly behind the scenes, that was the, the thinking. So this Digicel story is kind of just the latest iteration of how there's a lot of anxiety, skepticism and concern in Australia about the idea of China having control of telecommunications networks in some of these countries that are, from the Australian perspective, very much you know, part of their backyard, their sphere of influence. 
a lot of these Pacific Island nations rely very heavily on Australian aid. There were Australian peacekeepers in Solomon Islands uh, uh, in recent decades, uh, for example. So the idea of rising Chinese influence is definitely a concern. And, you know, there is a lot of debate about how real that influence is and how significant it is. I mean, there certainly are some concrete examples. For example, uh, Solomon Islands and Kiribati near the end of 2019 both switched diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing and accepted the, the one China principle. You know, that's the kind of, you know, increasing influence that China certainly does have. And then there have been, you know, various stories with, you know, varying level of, of sourcing and varying levels of, of, you know, hard fact behind them about Chinese plans for infrastructure in this part of the world as well. And certainly they have ramped up aids and loans to this part of the world. Yeah, and, and, and you've had that same sort of, you know, concern about telecommunications networks in, in the UK, in the United States. And last week you reported that the Biden administration was in talks with the Australian government over, I quote, preventing Digicel's Pacific operations from falling into Chinese ownership. Now, are there any updates? Have you heard any more response from the Biden administration about this? What are analysts saying to you? Yeah, we don't know a lot about exactly when any deal might come to fruition. You know, Telstra has come forward and said that there are talks underway with Australia. And the Australian Financial Review, which is sort of like the Australian answer to the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, reported background uh, sources saying that the US has some hand in this, um, which is not surprising because the Biden administration has been quite open about galvanizing Western allies as a counter to China's growing uh, influence. And from the US perspective, that rising influence is, is threatening to some extent. It's not quite clear exactly how this will come down, but I don't think the American influence is particularly surprising. Uh, Australia is one of the United States' closest allies, uh, treaty ally, and Australia and the US have been very much aligned on questions like this, specifically questions about control of telecommunications networks and stuff like that, even more so than a country like the United Kingdom, which for a long time hedged its bets about what sort of threat Huawei did or did not represent. Australia was very quick to align with this more wary position, and the US and Australia have been very simpatico on that. So I think we'll just have to see exactly what comes through. But I think from the US perspective, certainly it's not at all surprising that they would be wary of Chinese ownership in this part of the world. And also it's worth pointing out that you know while... Australia has a significant presence in Pacific Island nations. There are also uh, a number of those islands have very strong U.S. links as well. A number of those, uh, not specifically the islands that would be covered by Digicel, but in that part in the South Pacific region, there are a number of islands that are part of a compact of association under which the U.S. guarantees their defense and things like that. So this part of the world, even though these are very sparsely populated islands that people don't think about very much, there's a lot of big power players that are interested in increasing their presence and influence. And you alluded to this earlier, and it's really the $1.1 billion question. Is China Mobile anything more than just a stalking horse? Is there any evidence that they are trying to buy this network? Or are they investing in other parts of the South Pacific that you know really gives a sense they're trying to increase their influence? I mean, there is some evidence. Uh, there are Australian newspaper reports that have quoted unnamed sources in the Australian security source uh, services that have said that this is 
in play, but it's quite unclear to what extent this deal or these talks were ever uh, serious or real. You know, China Mobile has not confirmed any interests in Digicel. Digicel actually uh, flatly denied for its part that there was any kind of deal in the, in the works. And then more recently, it came out with a sort of cryptic statement saying that it had been approached by unnamed players. Uh, so it seems that these companies are holding their cards quite closely to their chest. I mean, there have been some suggestions by some analysts, including some that I quoted in my piece, that, you know, Digicel and Dennis O'Brien, the owner of Digicel, would have an interest in inflating or exaggerating any Chinese interest in this uh, deal. Digicel itself is hugely indebted. Last year had to um, restructure its loans. I think it has over $7 billion in debt. You know, obviously the pandemic hasn't been good for business in a lot of areas. Uh, and there is a sense that uh, Dennis Bryan is quite keen to get rid of these assets. And, you know, to what extent Digicel has an incentive to inflate the Chinese interest is, is really unclear, but there certainly are people who've raised that possibility. I mean, one person I spoke to basically said that there was a geopolitical premium on this deal and basically suggested that as a business deal, this is of potentially dubious value. But, you know, if the Australian government is determined to avoid Chinese ownership uh, of this network, then it becomes not purely a business decision and a decision involving geopolitics. And then is the price worth it? Well, that's a different question, I suppose. And could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, Dennis O'Brien, the, the owner of Digicel? I, you know, I think when we talked online, you discussed about he has a reputation. Yeah, he's a very well-known figure in Ireland. Uh, he's Ireland's uh, richest citizen. He's been involved in all sorts of ventures, including, you know, Ireland's telecommunications uh, networks. And he's also a somewhat controversial uh, figure. Uh, in the mid-90s, we had a tribunal in Ireland called the Moriarty Tribunal, into corruption allegations involving a number of Irish governments. And that tribunal concluded that an Irish minister at the time had provided Dennis O'Brien with very uh, useful information that helped him secure the mobile phone license that was uh, on offer at the time around the mid-90s. Um, and that tribunal also concluded that Dennis O'Brien had given a number of payments to Fine Gael, the the Irish party that was involved in arranging these bids at the time. There was never any criminal charges or anything like that resulting from these findings. And Dennis O'Brien has denied ever providing payments as this tribunal concluded. Um, so he's, he's a very well-known figure, certainly um, very influential and, and somewhat controversial in his uh, native Ireland. And obviously, as this Digicel story um, illustrates, he's got interests really all around the world. Digicel actually, not only in the Pacific, is a major player in Central America uh, and the, the Caribbean as well. It's interesting just how far we can see the stretches when it comes to mobile communications. You know, Hong Kong's richest man, for example, is, is involved in UK telecommunications networks. But I, I wanted to ask you about so what should we expect next on this? The Australian government seems to be using uh, the former national telecommunications company, Telstra, as a vehicle for this deal. So do we have a timeline, you know, an idea about when this might come down? Yeah, well, nothing has been uh, sealed yet. I mean, th this story emerged quite a long time ago, uh, last year, really, in sort of 
in news reports that had unnamed sources from, you know, business world and government sources and so on. And Telstra only just this month actually confirmed that this deal was a potential thing. Uh, Telstra itself has gone to pains to say that it this deal will only happen if it's considered to be in the interest of its shareholders. It's a private company. Um, and it's been quite open that it has been approached by the Australian government. It wasn't done at its own initiative, but it's also insisting that this will not be done uh, simply at the government's behest. I mean, there's no suggestion, at least at this point, that this would be uh, mandatory or that Telstra wouldn't have a choice. This is, as it's been portrayed so far, at least this is a, a voluntary uh, arrangement or potential arrangement. Um, and it's not certain that it will transpire. I think we'll just have to see what happens. I mean, I suppose from, you know, Teltra's point of view, while it might be debatable what value Digicel has uh, such as an indebted company, the Australian government appears to be prepared to really cover uh, most of the cost uh, with a very sizable loan, reportedly over $1 billion uh, Australian dollars. So presumably that would, you know, factor into the risk calculation of Telstra as well. But at this point, we're just going to have to wait and see what actually does transpire. We'll be watching for your next updates and uh, analysis via This Week in Asia on scmp.com, John. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week. But there's a real Olympics flavor to geopolitics this week. Seems like we're hearing of new results and outcomes every day. But do they really stick the landing? So with that, a reminder that you'll see the latest updates and the latest analysis at SCMP.com as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin continues his tour across Southeast Asia. I have a feeling we'll also be hearing from our man in Brussels next week. And we most definitely will be hearing much more about the British Carrier Strike Group as it steams into the South China Sea. I'm pretty sure it's not stopping here in Hong Kong on its way to Japan. Follow the SEMP Political Economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. Follow me at Chad Bray. Stay safe from the Delta variant and stay tuned to our Olympics coverage. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.